Welcome to the Let's Talk EMDR podcast brought to you by the EMDR International Association or EMDRIA. I'm your host, Kim Howard. In this episode, we are talking with EMDR certified therapist and consultant Marlene Kenny about EMDR therapy and suicide postvention. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with EMDR certified therapist and consultant Marlene Kenny to talk about EMDR therapy and suicide risk. Thank you, Marlene, for being here today. We are so happy that you said yes. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Marlene, can you tell us a little bit about your path to becoming an EMDR therapist? Well, my path to becoming a trauma therapist really started with my work getting a master's in anthropology and doing field research on my mother's reservation in Montana, the Blackfeet Reservation, where I was really stunned to understand the impact of the reservation boarding schools on people's actual lives. And from there, I moved out of out of the world of, of research and participant observation to becoming a licensed clinical social worker and working in community mental health for a really cool trauma therapy design program to work with families, mostly moms, but parents who screened in an early intervention on risk. And the moment that I decided to sh- to get more training and to try to work on developing an approach that was more collaborative and transparent and effective was exactly when I was working in a shelter for teen mothers who were in the care of the Department of Children and Families doing groups with them that just felt ineffective. It felt like I was defaulting to my own kind of loving eyes and kind of group skill attitude. My organization didn't approve of EMDR. And so I quit and and got trained um, in EMDR therapy and just started really delivering in lots of different contexts, critical incident support, which is the suicide prevention and postvention work, long-term EMDR, complex trauma, and EMDR early intervention. It sort of, it went from, from like zero to 80 in the first 18 months, really, of being, being trained in EMDR. That's a great origin story, and it's very unique. I think you're the first guest we've had on the podcast who has an anthropology degree undergrad or postgrad. You're not the first Native American Indian that we've interviewed, but well, that's not true. I think you are. And if anyone's disclosed, I think you are. We have interviewed Shelly Spearchief, but she's Canadian. So yeah, Yeah. technically you are, I think the first Native American Indian. So fantastic. We love that. My mom is a tribal member and my affiliation, just to be super clear, is I'm considered a first descendant because of of the way the tribe organizes kind of rights to property and healthcare and just and just belonging. However, my sense of belonging and responsibility is very much grounded in in that origin story and the idea that what we do always has to be sustainable for the people that we work with. So it inflects so much of how I think and what and what I do, kind of all of these identities that that shaped my drive into this work and kind of keep me alive every day. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. What's your favorite part of working with EMDR therapy? Well, I think that the, first of all, adaptive information processing really speaks to the collaborative, transparent healing nature of what we do, no matter which type of EMDR therapy that we're doing. So I love working in a context where I'm not doing something to somebody, that I'm doing something with somebody always, whether it's a group or an individual. And it makes me feel like I'm able to invite healing and not inflict healing or more wounding. So I really think that's how I, that's how I think about it. And honestly, I love doing groups and the fact that we actually do transform people's natural healing is so powerful to me. So I, I mean, there are a lot of favorite parts for sure, but I like that I create lasting change that is really coming from within the person that or group that we're working with. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. What successes have you seen using EMDR therapy for suicide risk? Well, one of the areas that I am specialized in comes from years of working in what's called suicide postvention. So the the moments in time right after there's been a suicide loss, a death by suicide. And that happens to be a time when loved ones, people highly exposed or folks that are might be more vulnerable because of their own history, their own trauma, their own suicide risk, or their own empathy for an imagination around what's happened to their loved one. That's when their kind of risk really does spike actually in the fir- in the first four months. And so I love that I feel equipped to use EMDR to sit with people in that excruciating first four months and help reduce their risk from jump, right? Just just by saying, we are going to work with some of the worst parts that are are held. And I am really confident that this is going to support you now and help you grieve and I know that this is going to reduce your risk in the future. So that piece has allowed me knowing what to do. I think of it as sort of like when I work with first responders, they say, it's weird that this thing is bothering me. I have the training. I should be able to go forward. And that is protective. So I see EMDR as protecting me because I know what to do and I know how to, how to support, but it also decreases the risk that a death by suicide introduces into someone's life. I'm glad you mentioned that my son lost a good friend in junior high school to suicide. And that came as a complete shock for our family. And I had just met this child the week before Mm. had no indication that he had any kind of thoughts like that, or he was happy. He shook my hand. He looked me in the eye, which is unusual for a 14-year-old boy, you know? And so when we got the call, I was at work and a friend of mine who was a stay-at-home mom immediately whisked 
you know, she went to school and it, school was closed because it was a uh, voting day. And she immediately whisked our sons, they were friends, to the school for counseling. The school brings all the counselors in when something tragic like that happens. And so we were lucky that we were able to get him some immediate help. But it it impacted our family in a way that we didn't think it would. You know, I mean, you don't you don't know until it happens to someone that you know and love. After that, we celebrated his life by doing the out of darkness walk. Out of darkness walk. Thank you. And so we did that for several years and raised money for that cause. And as we would go, I would see people at those walks who were in our community, who went to our church and had been touched somehow by either an attempted suicide or a suicide of, of someone that they knew and, and loved and family member, friend, whoever. And I thought, holy cow, this is more widespread than you think it is, I guess, because it's not I don't know. It's not maybe, maybe it's not talked about or it's just not known in general. I mean, these were not people that I was friends with. These were people that I had seen in the community I knew of, but didn't really know well. Mm-hmm. And so it's good that out of the darkness walks happen so that people can come and gather and honor their loved ones. So thank you for that work. I, it's very crucial. All trauma therapy is crucial, but that I, I don't know. Well, I feel and like that's a little extra crucial. <laughs> it is. And, and the, and the thing that I, feel is really important in what you're saying is just a couple of things. One, that there are things people can do immediately. And EMDR, early intervention, is often not one of those things that school counselors or people on the scene do immediately. They they do sometimes psychological first aid if they're trained, or they just use their their, you know, their their skill. But often those kids, those teachers, those community members have continued intrusive thoughts and yep. um, and sometimes their own suicidal ideation. And that's mm-hmm. where EMDR therapists come in, right? To be able to have the training to not have what I like to call the universal O-S-H-I-T moment where, and you can edit that out if, you know, if there's no, if there's no <laughs> spelling swear words on this, on this podcast, but that moment where you're just like, what am I dealing with? Right. EMDR therapists know what to do with that. And often that's the first point of contact for getting psychotherapy that can be life-saving. And we know that lost survivors from that concentric circle of like your son and his friend to the community members, to the family, loss survivors are often dealing with the loss and the harder parts of the loss for seven years, Mm, what the research shows. Mm. And it is sometimes at the root of psychopathology, especially depression. And so that's, that's the second piece. EMDR therapy, some of the success that I've seen is really talking to people about when their risk started right? In the language that we have in EMDR and the framework that we use, it can really de-escalate the scariness of that, of that, of that idea. You know, when somebody's sort of like, hmm, well, it started when somebody I know had an attempt, Mm -hmm. or I felt really hopeless, or I didn't belong because I moved. Okay, let's, let's go with that. Let's set that up and start to work with that. So, it's a very integrative approach that I use with what we know about public health and, and suicide and suicide postvention. 
and what EMDR therapy or VMDR therapy does. So I really advocate success based on a more integrative and informed approach. Marlene, are there any myths you would like to bust about working with someone who is at risk of suicide? I don't know if it's my favorite myth because a myth is, you know, sometimes destructive, but one of the things that I notice in responding to communities and teaching about suicide prevention and postvention is that a lot of people feel like if you talk about it, you're going to introduce the idea in somebody's head. And that is absolutely not true. If you talk to somebody who has suicidal ideation or more escalated around thinking about having a plan or really dysregulated and they're, they're psychological, they're in that sort of tunnel vision mode, people are relieved. And EMDR therapists can ask those questions in history taking. Have you ever thought about it? It's not going to introduce the idea. In fact, it's going to give us more to work with and more safety and transparency. In therapy, we want to make sure that people feel safe Mm -hmm. in disclosing when they are feeling like that's the only option. Of course, we use a safety plan, but as EMDR therapists, we might talk about, you know, what can you do to support your nervous system? What are the resources that you know we can install and work with? There's just so much we can do once we ask the question, but the myth around it often gets in the way of, pe- of people really talking about it. Thank you for putting that myth to bed. Absolutely. Uh, are there any specific complexities or difficulties working with this community? So many, actually. And I think the, the one thing that comes to mind, Kim, is I'm actually sitting on the couch in my office and I'm reminded of lost survivor I work with whose brother died by suicide. And and in this particular case, the client, which is often the case in a lot of trauma, folks with traumatic experience, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so she sort of operated And all of the people before me who treated her operated with this idea that because of her bipolar disorder, her suicide risk was super high because she is so dysregulated and so extreme with her emotions. So she was going through a transition in her own personal life and something that was potentially traumatizing to her and her suicide risk escalated here on this couch to the point that we got the safety plan out, you know, I brought I brought her partner in to sort of talk talk about our next steps and our next plan. And I think a lot of clinicians probably would have hospitalized that client. And I think that is a choice point and a challenge in working with this population, sort of like their safety, our safety our community safety is always sort of on kind of on the line in some ways, especially when, when there's a spike in risk. But the research really shows that it is better for folks for us to use a safety plan to work on emotional regulation, increase number of days of therapy and contact before we end up hospitalizing people. 
just because that reinforces a kind of stigma. And a lot of times they don't get, especially people with trauma histories, don't get the care that they really need. And this young woman's case for her, bringing her partner in, talking about where we're at, what would help, what wouldn't help, strategizing around her safety plan, around how do you know that that these are things we ask in preparation in EMDR therapy. What do you do when when it's too much? How do you take care of yourself? What skills here can you transfer? She reported that two days later, when I saw her again in the office, that that was a pivotal moment for her, that she didn't feel sick or broken. She felt a little bit more capable of managing those strong emotions, which were really, really scary. Yeah. So that is just a, a piece of the complexity that we always have to name in working with this population. And a lot of times why EMDR therapists coming out of basic training leave their weekend one thinking, I was told not to do EMDR therapy with people with suicidal ideation. And somehow that's a myth that kind of has seeped into, into the EMDR world. It's, it could not be further from the truth. One of the risk factors for death by suicide, right, that increases rates of suicide is either a traumatic event lost by death by suicide, somebody in your, in your family, or a trauma history. Increased ACE scores increase the risk. So what do we do in EMDR therapy? We do that. that that's our work. That's right. what we do. So it just could not be further from the truth or what's effective, but we do have to pay attention to always cultivating safety and sometimes pulling back and moving forward in terms of targeting and reprocessing. By the time somebody gets there, I always think about, am I flooding them? What's going on with their capacity to regulate and to not attach to these traumatic memories? But if they're already in you know, phase four, they're pretty much have what they need in order to maintain that dual focus of awareness and stay stay and stay safe. Thank you. That's a good answer. How do you practice cultural humility as an EMDR therapist? I love this question because my first answer is like, well, hey, Kim, like <laughs> all I do. Um... I just told you who I was, <laughs> so I don't know why you're asking me this question. <laughs> but and one of the things that I do, especially re- related to traumatic grief, that's, that is part of cultural humility and suicide postvention, is I talk to people about, first of all, the meaning of suicide in their cultural framework, which might be their religious ideas. It might be their country or community of origin. I need to understand that right? I'm going in there saying, oh, we can talk about this. It feels better when you talk about this. If you can name it, you can tame it. But somebody else might be sitting there thinking, this is the first time anybody, like, why are you being so, why are you being so like casual about this? This is, this, this could be damning. So I want to understand that. And I also want to kind of I sort of think about it as like, let me tell you how I work with this, like where I'm coming from. So that's one thing. And then traumatic grief wise, 
I always really just need to know how people, what their rituals are, what makes sense to them. How is it talked about in, you know, what are, what can they avail themselves of in terms of comfort and safety and support? One of the things we know helps in, in suicide postvention, believe it or not, is there's an old study out that says working with faith leader, a psychic or a therapist in that order. Who is your faith leader, right? Have a faith leader. What does that mean to you? Am I going to offer a psychic to somebody who is going to shut down and think that I'm coming from a place that they can't relate to? That's really sort of how frame cultural humility in this, in this part of the work. And so really from a suicide prevention point of view, when I think about cultural humility, and I'm in community, whether it's doing a training or a response, whoever I'm working with, I always try to provide resources, suicide prevention resources that are in the language and the culture of the folks that I'm working with. So for example, last week, I was doing two-day training in Chicago with Ukrainian folks who are recently in the U.S. who are helping other Ukrainians come and resettle in Chicago. So I happen to know that there's a suicide prevention hotline in Ukraine that is relatively new, but getting a lot of traction. So we want to provide resources that that they can use in their own language, but also that they can offer to other other people. And to me, that's that's cultural humility. That's really meeting people where they are so that they can kind of work me out of a job by connecting to the healing that's already in their own community. It's a good answer. Thank you. Do you have a favorite free EMDR-related resource you would suggest, either for the public or other EMDR therapists? I love free things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So the two things that came to mind, I had to sort of sort through my memory banks with with that question as I was thinking about it. The two things that come to mind are... I always use Elon Shapiro and Amberit Lobs for elements. I use that in a lot of the work that I do, and that is available. I have an attachment that I can send you that you can connect here. And surprisingly, one thing that I recommend, whether I'm doing community work, trainings, kind of across the board, I recommend that folks use bilateral or binaural sound as as part of a strategy for especially sleep, which is, I find that general public and EMDR therapists, that's the most common physical reaction to anything that happens and also just the load and burden of our work. And so there's there's a lot of bilateral and binaural sounds available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, and um, some of them are more tailored for different things that you're trying to affect. I often recommend a YouTube sound by David Grand. Sort of anybody who works with me knows that that's where I start because the musicians and sound engineers in my life say it's not too annoying. (laughs) Good. We definitely don't want to be annoying if we're trying to calm ourselves (laughs) down, right? I don't want that to be annoying. You don't want to be distracted by no, like, why are they playing that that <laughs> chanting sound in the background as it's going back and forth. Yeah. 
It's funny that you mentioned that. I've been practicing yoga since 2010, and I've had several yoga teachers say that the hardest part of yoga for many people often is shavasana, which is at the very end when you're usually laying prone on your mat and it's at the end of class and it's a five-minute meditation, maybe 10, depending on how long the class is, because they always tell you, now is not the time to talk about your, think about your to-do list when you leave the gym, you know, or you leave class. This is not about that. This is about focusing on what's going on with you internally and certain things you do pick up, you know, when you're quiet like that, you pick up on certain things that you like or don't like, you know, like some people love the sound of crickets and that they want that to be their white noise in their machine. And I, I personally don't care for that. So you have to kind of find what works for you, but there are some options out there. So we will definitely link those in the podcast description so people can go check them out. Awesome. So thanks for suggesting those. What would you like people outside of the EMDR community to know about EMDR therapy and suicide risk? First of all, that EMDR therapy isn't going to damage anyone and that there are approaches with EMDR therapy that like the recent traumatic episode protocol or any of the early intervention approaches that really limit the focus of EMDR therapy to what's happened. So you can, you can get support and treatment for an escalation in risk or exposure and not have to do that old, old work until you're ready. So I like people to know that that we can work in an incremental way that is collaborative and supportive of wherever the person who's experiencing suicidal ideation or an increase in risk is, um, and that we can include their loved ones. We can, we can do groups. We can do lots of, it's just a matter of getting into the door and your EMDR therapist can, can find a way to support you. Yeah. We have said this on the podcast before, and I will say it again for anybody who's new and listening. If you go to therapy, you are brave. We had a podcast guest, Marshall Lyles, say that about a year ago when I interviewed him about EMDR therapy. And I think it was expressive arts. Don't quote me on the title directly. I have to go back and double check. And he said that it's a privilege and an honor when people come into his office or into his Zoom room and go to therapy with him and how brave people are. And I never thought about it that way, you know, because it does take a lot for somebody to step out and say, hey, I've got some issues. I need some help because I can't, I can't solve them myself. So anybody out there listening, thank you for going to therapy. Anybody who's thinking about going to therapy, you're brave. So thank one, you. Of, one of the things that I find, especially in this, in this connection between suicidal ideation and risk factors and just EMDR therapy in general is now there's a lot of information out there that prospective clients can reach into. So sometimes they walk in thinking that we're going to do EMDR therapy to them and it's going to go at a pace that they're not ready for, that they might discover something that's hidden or that they didn't know about or that they can't deal with. And so one of the, one of the fra- phrases that I often use when I meet people for the first time, I just say, I want you to think these two words, grace and pace. And I give you this space together with me. This is what you need. And my job is, is to make sure that we're going along at a, at a pace that feels safe and right for you. Just because I can go there doesn't mean it's right for you or frankly, right for me. 
because I don't want to flood you. So right. I think that that's a, I think that's a really important piece of doing EMDR therapy in general is to help people understand from the beginning that we do this with you, not to you. Yeah, that's great. I like that. I like that saying. Thank you. If you weren't an EMDR therapist, what would you be? I often am thinking about a plan B. Um, <laughs> One day when I retire and I own my own <laughs> island, I'm going to open a B&B. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's my, one of my self-care sort of safety valves is I'm just like, well, I don't have to do this. I could do. And so I could do, or would want to do, first of all, the only other type of therapy that I would ever do is forest bathing. I would not be a psychotherapist if I wasn't doing EMDR. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be in practice now if I wasn't doing EMDR therapy. And then I think a lot about in my one of my core values is sustainability and in all that I do and and how I live. And so really aligning that core value to what else I would do, I would be a beekeeper. Ooh. I love bees and I'm a bee advocate and I think about bees and I sort of study bees think about like the cross-cultural ways that we that people keep bees and are in love with bees and they're just so so important to being able to live on this planet yep so I think I would probably be be a beekeeper. One fun fact about me is I always wear a bee necklace. Since, I see that. Since the war started in Ukraine, because one of our family members who's Ukrainian was a beekeeper and had mm. to flee the country. And because of my plan B, beekeeping bee <laughs> thing, my first thought unusually is what's going to happen to the bees there's and my my person had to leave his bees and the bees had the bees will be okay they'll figure out how to take care of themselves but it's such an attachment you know just the the impact of how we live on those tiny really impressive little social creatures that that sustain everything that that helps us breathe and live so well, you could actually do the beekeeping thing if you live in an area that would allow you to have that. So you wouldn't have to give up your EMDR therapy practice if you wanted to be. You could be a beekeeper now if you wanted. Thought about volunteering with a beekeeper. Oh, yeah. Um, because again, since this sustainability is my jam, I'm like I'd never invite bees into my life unless I was sure I was going to be a good steward of bees. And so I have thought, you know, I'll be a volunteer and apprentice to a yeah. That's um, a good idea. Yeah. That's then you can decide if it's something that you really could do and want to do. Because I think sometimes we have delusions of grandeur about, about things. And then you get into the reality. You're like, nobody told me about this part, you know? Exactly. <laughs> I didn't know, you know? Exactly. So. Exactly. The other thing that I would do, I'm a skier and I love being outside. I would think about being um, adapt an adaptive ski instructor, but by oh. the time you know, again, that's that takes a lot of a lot of skill and a lot of training. But it's something that I that I think a lot about, just sort of how to bring joy and balance into the lives the lives of other people. That's what I would continue to do. 
if I wasn't an EMDR therapist. For sure. Well, those are really cool and very unique. So thank you. There's no wrong answer to that question. We like to ask it because we think it's fun. And yeah. we have gotten some interesting answers over the history of the podcast. So thank you for giving yeah. us a new idea and something unique. We appreciate that. Is there anything else you'd like to add? If I use this as a, um, as a place to deliver a message to my colleagues and people listening about EMDR or learning about EMDR, I think that in this practice, it has to be a practice. It has to be rigorous. We have to take care of our own nervous systems because our nervous system is part of the process. So if you have a raggedy nervous system, friends, it's going to be hard to be available for somebody else's nervous system that is that is in the room. So think about how you're caring for your own nervous system as you care for the nervous system of, of others. And that's rigorous training and consultation, reading, and also how are you resting? Make sure that you're inviting some rest into your into your pocket every single minute of the day. It's a good answer. It's a good way to end podcast. Thank you. Welcome. This has been the Let's Talk EMDR podcast with our guest, Marlene Kenny. Visit www.emdria.org for more information about EMDR therapy or to use our Find an EMDR Therapist with more than 15,000 therapists available. Like what you hear? Make sure you subscribe to this free podcast wherever you listen. Thanks for being here today.